Reading Corner today. I'm very excited to be talking to Nicola Davies and Jenny Desmond. Both have an incredible pedigree in terms of writing and illustrating the natural world. This is the first time that they've worked together and it really is a partnership that's made in heaven, as we'll see. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. (laughs) Nicola, we're talking about the book One World, 24 Hours on Planet Earth. A good starting point will be to explain the concept of the book to us. Well, if I read the note to the reader at the start, that's probably the best way to explain the concept. Planet Earth, our home, is always turning. One whole turn is what we call a day. And each day is split into segments like an orange, 24 of them. The time it takes for Earth to spin through one of those segments is what we call an hour. So there are 24 hours in a day. The City of London sits on a line that marks where the first segment begins, a line which runs around our planet from pole to pole. When it's midnight in London, it's also the start of a new hour in every other one of the segments around the world. The book you are about to read is going to take you on a journey around the world and back to see what's happening on planet Earth in just one moment. So the book starts at the stroke of midnight on the Greenwich Meridian with two children looking out at that dark sky. And of course, there's enormous symbolism there because the stroke of midnight. So by the time the last chime of midnight has sounded, we are back in that room in Greenwich with those two children. But having visited many of the other hours around the earth, Tell us a little bit about the selection process then. This, to me, seems like it must have been quite a headache. (laughs) It was an absolute headache. The first decision that I had to make was what time of year was it going to be? So I had to choose a time of year where interesting things were happening around the globe. And actually, it turned out that spring in the Northern Hemisphere was a really good time. So I eventually decided that it was going to be Earth Day. And I had to decide on a specific day because for each location, I had to be able to look at sunset and sunrise times to know exactly what was going on in each habitat. So I made an initial selection and then I changed it and I changed it and I changed it. I think I must have changed the selection of species and locations probably about five times to find the most interesting on every line of longitude. I want to bring in Jenny at this point because there's a very simple illustration next to your author's note, but it's a really important one because we're trying to visualise something that's quite complex. So this is a globe showing other world and we needed to make sure that the reader knew where London was where Greenwich London was because that's where the girls who go through the book are based and it's obviously in the meantime and this double spread actually went through quite a lot of different phases I had ideas of having a clock or having lots of children in different time zones doing lots of different things but actually in the end we decided to just keep it really really simple so that the concept of the planet earth turning was very clear. 
And you've got segments that look like the segments of an orange. Actually, until quite late in the process, this was an orange that I made into a globe at the same time. Anyway, it was all a little bit too complicated, I think. I'm going to just go back in the book a little bit. Why you set up the story with the illustration? Yeah, the two children who are the protagonists are under a rug, like the den that they've made from their two beds, which is what I used to do with my siblings when I was little and they're reading a book in the middle of the night with a torch and they're looking at this globe orange thing there's also some of the animals that are going to be in the book they've lined them all up in a long line which is what my daughter does going towards the globe so it's lots of references and visual imagery that's Mm. hinting at what's to come in the book but primarily it's about the girls relationship together and this excitement of being up in the middle of the night it is about these two children going on an imaginative journey and we see them flying to all of these different destinations reminded me a little bit of uh, the snowman we can see the world in this imaginative way so the first place that they go to is Svalbard in the Arctic Circle when it's midnight in Greenwich it's one o'clock in the morning Nicola tell us a little bit about this spread Finding the location for this was really difficult because actually this is out on the sea ice and locating the exact spot on the map where it would be and making sure that that was the right place for a newly emerged mother polar bear and her cubs was really tricky. One of the things that was important to me was this issue of the imaginative journey. And I think probably this spread because the children are obviously not dressed for the Arctic and they're flying, is the most imaginative one. One of the things that I really want to get over with this book is the idea that even if none of us get to see these places, to hold the idea in your heart that they exist somewhere is very, very, very powerful. But it's also extremely important because we need to care about places, about species, about habitats, about people who we will never meet and never see. And it's absolutely so beautifully embodied there by Jenny's illustration. And, you know, there's lots of other little things going on. There's an Arctic fox, there are Arctic terns, and there's a little seal out on the ice there, probably a little ringed seal. And the ice there is not solid. So we can see that it's not a solid sheet of sea ice as it might have been 40 or 50 years ago. Already in April, it's beginning to be unreliable. So it's that idea of the last stroke of midnight and things are changing and they're changing fast and we need to act. A couple of things that I wanted to pick up. The first one is this particular spread. It shows us how you need both the text and the illustration to make the inference about what's going on. So the text reads, every year now the ice melts earlier, making hunting hard. The future of this little family is not certain. Without the illustration, you don't know what is making the hunting harder. You have to look at what the bear is doing here. It didn't used to be very well explained that the idea of ice receding is is a bad thing. And it's a bad thing because polar bears need to walk on it. Uh, And the sea ice gives them access to the water, the marine environment under the ice, gives them access to seals. 
And in this illustration, we see very clearly that that sea ice is breaking up, is fragmented. Mm-hmm. And the seal that's out on the little patch of ice in the distance is not going to be accessible to that polar bear and certainly not to her cubs. Mm-hmm. Shows the importance of pausing to talk about what's going on. Where are we going to next? Ah, we're going to Zambia. And we've got some elephants here. A young elephant is being born. And I suppose one of the things that really struck me here was you are inviting a reader to have curiosity and to question. So the text here reads, the wildlife rangers will do their best to protect them all from poachers who would like to kill these elephants and sell their tusks. So I'm immediately questioning, why would anybody want to do that? For years and years, I've been telling aspiring picture book readers, you don't need to tell the whole story, particularly something that is episodic in its nature. Each spread is a snapshot and is the beginning of a whole other set of conversations and questions. One of the things that I really wanted to do was to pick stories that were neither wholly positive or wholly negative. Africa-wide, elephants are in a really dire state. But in a few places in Africa, and the Luanga Valley is currently one of them, there have been enormous strides made towards protecting elephants from ivory poaching. And where that happens, the elephant population responds enormously and recovers. Jenny, tell us a little bit about this little creature that we've got at the front here that is a mongoose so Nicola did loads of notes for me and I had a huge list of animals that might be on each spread and then it was up to me to decide what was going to go in you've got some really nice spotted hyenas in the back there as well and then there's a little herd of zebra just peeping out and then the two lions roaring and that's a very nice piece of behavior there because there's two male lions roaring there not one and it's very often brothers, siblings or cousins who then do the roaring at night to defend the boundaries of their territory. Also visually it's quite nice to do more than one angle and spread of each animal because actually if you've only got one spread to depict elephants or depict lions if you only do one of each one you only get that one angle whereas if you put a few different ones in then You know, you can see the lion roaring and you can also see the lion coming in a threatening way towards the elephants who have their backs to their baby to defend it. We're moving on to the turtles. So this is in India and this is the turtles returning to the sea. One of the things that I picked up here is something that I think you do so well, Nicola, using vocabulary in context without the need to explain it to us. So you talk about hatchlings not baby turtles. You really don't need to explain everything when you've got wonderful illustration to rely on. I mean, the other thing to say about this spread, one of the criteria for choosing particular locations and species was so that we had a range of different sorts of animals. So we didn't have all mammals or all birds. So there was a bit of everything. It was really important to have marine things, to have fish in there, and also to have flowers, which we'll come to later on when we get to California. And I was searching, searching, searching all the time, looking for the right time of year. And this was one that I spent ages and ages and ages double checking that actually 
the turtles at this particular location would still be hatching at this time of year. If you went to this beach in April in India, you would have a good chance of seeing this mass emergence of little turtles popping up out of the sand and wriggling their way to the beach. Jenny, this is just one of a number of spreads where you're having to illustrate the night time. Did you enjoy that or did it present (laughs) any challenges for you? Obviously challenges because there's no colour at night. So it's all about artistic licence. I felt this one was quite important to not have any colour because I wanted to emphasise the light of the moon because it's all about the turtles going towards the light of the moon. So I made sure that it was all quite dark, this spread. And I wanted it to be quite a clear night as well. So I've put a little shooting star at the top. Um, I think the next illustration that we're going to have a look at shows how important it is to vary the visual perspective. We're going to China where you're illustrating this by looking up into the tree canopy and there's a nice space in the tree canopy where the text fits beautifully a nice example of design here as well and one of the things that's implied but not stated is that you talk about sending the pangolins and the clouded leopards off to bed you don't tell us that they're nocturnal animals and there we see a clouded leopard asked to sleep on a branch But we don't see a pangolin because, of course, with this perspective, you wouldn't, would you? Well, they'd probably already be tucked up with this level of light and they'd be in a tree hole somewhere where you wouldn't see them. Actually, there was a real problem with this spread because books like this are incredibly expensive to produce and publishers are very keen to get foreign editions. And one of the problems with this is that China has one time across the entire country, a political time, that is set to have the country all in the same time zone, when in fact, China geographically crosses, I think, four different time zones. So when we came to this one, the Chinese buyer said, well, that's wrong, it wouldn't be 6.30 a.m. So I had to send a diagram showing where the reserve was, where the line of longitude, the relevant line of longitude ran, and which side of it this reserve was so that they would be convinced that we got it right. We move on to the whales in the Philippines. And the thing that I picked up here was what you've already suggested, Nicola, about the positive messages. It says, once whales were hunted until they almost disappear, but now they're doing well. One of the things that was really important for me with this book, well, as always, is to is to introduce readers to the idea of, research into the natural world being really important. So with this spread of whale sharks, there's fantastic stuff about whale sharks. You know, they're the biggest fish in the sea and we know virtually nothing about them. But one of the handles on finding out about them is a lovely piece of citizen science because a lot of people want to dive with whale sharks and pay a lot of money in various parts of the world where they turn up to go and dive with them and take photographs of them. They have a lovely spotty pattern on their backs. But that spotty pattern is individually unique. So divers and snorkelers who spot them in the wild and take pictures of whale sharks can upload those photographs to a website which automatically analyzes them, identifies them, and helps researchers find out where in the oceans they go and how they move about, which is an incredibly powerful tool to protecting their future. On to Australia. Here you're introducing the idea 
of water security, water drying up, forest fires getting worse. And for you, Jenny, the chance to go somewhere very hot. I find it much harder to do really bright colours. My natural inkling is the muted colours with a little splash of red from the girl's top. So this was slightly out of my comfort zone, but I really enjoyed actually. And I'd actually been to Australia the year before. So I felt like I understood how hot it felt out there and heavy air, but the blue skies. And then there's all the birds flying around. So I want to make sure there's still lots of movement there and uh, the kangaroos bouncing across the page with the girls. I had the girls pretending to be kangaroos in the spread. (laughs) (laughs) And I love the bee eaters and the budgies in the tree. Rocks of budgies in Australia. just Oh, they're just gorgeous. We're moving on to Antarctica. What would you like to tell us about this one, Nicola? I dithered about penguins because obviously penguins in picture books are a bit of a cliche. But I had actually just finished a picture book about emperor penguins. And so the story of emperor penguins was in the front of my head. And to have something that's a bird that's about the size of these two kids was irresistible. I had no idea until I illustrated this that they were as big as the children. I actually drew them about half the size they were. Penguins seem to have a real character about them. I mean, I've been to a couple of penguin colonies where you're supposed to keep away from the penguins, but they won't keep away from you. They're just fascinated by anything different. I think when you live in that very, very white, very plain environment, anything different is interesting and you want to find out about it. I think that's why they approach humans. Moving on to the next spread, we're down in Hawaii with the great migrators, the whales. I love whales and just painting this one was really satisfying, just all the splashing of like paint. I just went mad with paint splashing and yeah, it was fun. We've got this fantastic leap of the whale out of the water, which is breathtaking and you've really captured that. You absolutely can. I mean... Humpbacks are one of my first loves, one of the first animals I studied in the wild. And I've seen them breaching many times and it every t- it doesn't get old. Really enjoyed doing the little baby breaching as well, because I think you quite often see the adult breaching, but it's quite unusual to see a, a baby breaching, but they do. And I just thought it looks so much fun for a little baby to do it. Now this is a spread that looks very different. You talked about the flowers, but also we've got insects in here. So important to get insects into our story. One of the things that I noticed is the figurative language. It says bees as small as sesame seeds and as big as almonds. The clever thing with this example is that we can demonstrate this easily. I immediately want to rush to find the sesame seed and the almond. And you've got then this real life comparison to show them. That's tricky. And I thought about that a lot. I thought, oh, kids would know sesame seeds. What could I use that they would know? And I could have used things that they would know. But obviously, you don't have seeds without pollination. And you certainly don't have almonds. The story of almond pollination in California is a big ecological story. But the point about this spread, the Pinnacles National Park, It has the greatest diversity of bee pollinators of anywhere else on Earth. It's an extraordinary place. And Jenny, this looks visually very different from the other spreads that we've talked about because you've put no background in it. I really fancied doing something that felt quite graphic here. So there are loads of different types of flowers and petals and things because different bees like different types of flowers. And 
I just liked the idea of lining them up in the front rather than lots of perspective and stuff. Mm-hmm. There's so many ways that you can do each spread mm-hmm. and it's about just choosing one that feels the most fun to do. It shows off the flower shapes really beautifully and the variety of ways in which flowers are held up by stalks. So it works fantastically well. We're moving on again. Tell us about this spread, Nicola. We are moving westward. But of course, because it was nighttime, there's a million things in Yasuni National Park in Ecuador. It's a rainforest, you know, absolutely gorgeous things we could have had by day. But actually the Duraculis, these little owl monkeys, are very, very interesting because they're unique amongst the primates in being nocturnal. So that was great fun to be able to talk about that. Moving on to Brazil, eight o'clock in the evening. And this just evokes an amazing sense of awe and wonder. It says, there along the riverbank, a jaguar, it swims without disturbing the star's reflections, creeps up to the caiman, pounces, bites. Is that true? It is a fantastic piece of footage of Jaguars catching came, but there's one particular one. It was one of one of my old colleague Alistair Fothergill's films. But it's of a jaguar just approaching this caiman so slowly, so carefully. And then the last two meters are covered at incredible speed. Jaguars have an incredibly powerful bite, and their classic killing bite is actually through the back of the skull. And it just grabs this caiman, and it's a big animal, and it's dead within, I don't know, 15 seconds. And initially, I'd actually illustrated the jaguar trying to go along with the stars. And this is the problem when you've only got one spread to depict all of this information. I decided that actually we needed the dynamic leaping of the jaguar onto the caiman because actually the words describe the swimming so beautifully anyway perhaps that's up then up to the reader to visualize that for themselves so i wanted to come on to this spread which is bird island south georgia 10 o'clock at night it's in the far south what really struck me here and i hope that what we're showing by discussing this book in detail is the range of emotion and response you are really getting from the reader and this is about an albatross chick it huddles in the nest against the wind and storm she's been alone for days while her mum and dad fly over the ocean to find food and it talks about her parents possibly not coming back and I thought that this was really evoking that sense of empathy because you've made this any child in a sense by using those words, mum and dad. I don't know if that was deliberate. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely deliberate. But I mean, deliberate in an intuitive way, if that doesn't sound bonkers. Looking at this illustration, this little chick alone in the Antarctic autumn, getting ready to fledge, needing to be ready to fledge before the winter comes in, and the intrinsic precariousness of that situation massively increased because of human activity. Parents could get caught on long lines. And the other tragic thing is that plastic floating in the ocean emits a smell, gives out the same chemical as the plankton blooms 
that albatross search for to give them a cue about where to find their food. So they will actually home in on plastic floating in the ocean and sometimes bring back a belly full of tiny plastic objects. I can't tell you how upsetting I find that. It really underlines for me that we talk a lot about empathy and fiction, but actually you can write non-fiction in a way that elicits empathy too. And that's really what this picture does and, and this text here. I'm glad, glad it worked. I wanted to reflect that in the weather and in the sea and the lands merging together in this wet, windy, difficult weather for the albatross. It, well, the baby sort of battling against this wind heroically in its nest. Coming to the end of the book, there's so much that we've talked about, but I'd like to end by talking a little bit about Earth Day, 22nd of April. What kinds of things can teachers and children and parents do for Earth Day? Earth Day is a day for awareness and for gratitude, but it's also a day to look outside your window and look, look at the sky look at the clouds. Even if you can't see anything green and alive, the fact that you have blue atmosphere and clouds above you is a symptom of a living planet. If you looked at Earth from far away in space, much, much too far away to see little details like living things, you could tell it was a planet that was alive because of the movement of the clouds and the air. Our weather isn't just generated by physical forces, it's also generated by the biology of the planet. So step outside and look. So April the 22nd is Earth Day, and the book that we've been talking about is One World. And I'd like to thank very much Nicola Davies and Jenny Desmond for joining me in the Reading Corner today. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks so much, Nikki. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. This episode is generously sponsored by Walker Books. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.